0: Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome back the incredible Megan Ramos.
1: like a government mandate that you must buy an entire tank of fuel every day or they're going to throw you in jail. We don't live in that type of society. (laughs) Maybe we do in some parts, but but you work from home like I do. So like I go to acupuncture and I go to the gym, like I'm not driving for miles a day, right? So to avoid going to jail, if I'm not emptying my tank, I'm going to have to fill up gas canisters eventually they fill up my car, my garage, my house, my backyard, and everything becomes this toxic load because I'm constantly having to fuel when I don't need fuel. And that's what we're doing, especially with our, like what we're eating and how often we're eating like we wake up we eat we go to work we have a donut we have a coffee break in the morning lunch like it's non-stop it's chaotic right you're buying like three full tanks of fuel a day and you're barely driving in body at all so of course you're going to store it and then you've got so much fuel tanks so many fat cells at the brim like you are just a toxic hazardous zone
0: I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. I hope you're having the best day ever. And I want to thank you personally for showing up and pressing play with all the options out there. Whether this is your first time on the Keto Camp podcast, welcome. We're so excited to have you here, or you're returning from a previous episode. Thank you so much for coming back. Today's episode is a fantastic conversation with Megan Ramos. Now, I've had Megan on the show before, maybe three or four times over the years. Uh, if you haven't listened to those, go back into the catalog and listen to those conversations. They were phenomenal. Today is also a phenomenal conversation with Megan. We start the conversation around the two culprits behind insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. We know that there are people out there who think that insulin resistance and diabetes is a genetic problem, but it's not. There are two main contributors to why somebody develops insulin resistance and how that turns into type 2 diabetes. She's going to unpack those two culprits. And once you understand that, you remove that interference. The body heals. Pretty cool. We'll talk about carbohydrates and how that just adds fuel to the fire of this problem. She's going to break down the role of glucose, insulin, protein, the different role of different carbs, and the benefits of a ketogenic diet, low carb diet for insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. We will talk about how the body stores fat. And of course, she gives some brilliant analogies that she has gotten from the wonderful Dr. Jason Fung. We talk about insulin and why insulin is not necessarily a bad hormone. It just has a bad PR team and why it's actually important once you get metabolically healthy to spike insulin from time to time. So we'll unpack how hormones or how the hormone insulin creates these hormonal shifts in a negative way when it's called too often and how to call it out the right way. We'll talk about the difference between men and women when it comes to keto and fasting. We'll get into some fasting myths. We're going to bust a lot of fasting myths out there, some false studies and misconceptions about fasting that's really going to empower you and equip you with the knowledge and the research and the steps to master fasting the right way. She'll give some really cool schedules, fasting schedules for you to use. One of my biggest takeaways was from what she shared, because I get a lot of questions about loose skin. How do I prevent loose skin from the weight I want to lose? Or how do I tighten loose skin from the weight loss I just had? And she'll break down a routine with a 36 hour water fast to prevent the loose skin to really reverse insulin resistance and also skin tags and other skin issues that you might be having. Then we'll talk about 20 to 24 hour fast. We'll talk about different protocols. She also does a Q&A at the end with some great questions as well. Uh, supplements, tea, can you drink that during a fast? Can you take that during the fast? We'll address a lot of the most commonly asked fasting questions. Before we bring on Megan, I want to get to today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This one comes from GRH, five-star review titled The Best. Here is what GRH wrote. I love, love the Keto Camp Podcast. I can tell that Ben cares about people's health and well-being. Not only does he share excellent professional groundbreaking experts in nutrition and physical health, Ben offers great pathways and advice for quality mental and well being health. I love the fact that every podcast gives relevant information that can be implemented day one. I implement a new technique or skill after each podcast. This podcast is everything. Thanks, Ben. Carolyn. Carolyn, thank you. You're awesome. I appreciate you for leaving that review. I love you right back. And I appreciate you so much for showing up and pressing play and for taking the time to leave that rating and review. If you haven't left the show a rating and review, please do so. Maybe I will read yours on the next episode and give you a nice little shout out and some love. You know, Megan Ramos, you're about to hear from her in a a minute, but she works closely with Dr. Jason Fung, the legend, the father of biohacking, the father of fasting. And we're bringing on Dr. Jason Fung during our seven-day keto challenge coming up on April 10th. This is a seven-day free challenge. Dr. Jason Fung is a featured speaker. So is Dr. Boz and Dr. Ken Berry and myself. And we have some other special guests I'm not going to announce yet. We're also giving away over $20,000 in free prizes. We've upped the ante to $20,000 in free prizes. You're going to win keto mojos, exogenous ketones, supplements, beef sticks, books, and a year membership to my Keto Camp Academy. We'll give that away as well. All you need to do to get registered for this free challenge is go over to ketocampchallenge.com and register your free spot. We'll drop that link in the podcast notes. If you have registered for a previous challenge we've done before, you are required to re-register for this one because this is a new one taking place on April 10th. So head over to ketocampchallenge.com. Okay, here's Megan. Megan Ramos is a clinical researcher from Canada. She now lives in the United States in California, and she joined Dr. Fung and his colleagues as a research student with a keen interest in preventative medicine when she was just 15 years old. She's a world leading expert on therapeutic fasting and low carbohydrate diets and has guided over 10,000 people worldwide. She has amazing books that you could find on Amazon. I saw Megan has a new book coming out as well, Fasting for Women. I saw that today, that's super cool. And without further ado, here is the wonderful, the beautiful, the incredible Megan Ramos. (laughs) (laughs) Hey
1: Ben, thanks for the introduction.
0: You're very welcome. Thanks for being here today. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing?
0: I am even better now that you joined us. Thank you so much. Uh, I know it's earlier for you out in California and it's a weekend, so thank you for being so committed.
1: No, we've been trapped under a monsoon rain for like 30 days now.
0: That's what I hear, which is rare for California,
1: huh? Yeah, they're not locals. Are not too um, sure what to do about it. I'm from Toronto, so I'm used to weird weather at this time of the year. But yeah, I don't. I don't know how many days are going on now, so I'm not going anywhere. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, you're here with us today. We're gonna have a great time. I want to focus the conversation on two metabolic conditions that are just everywhere, and not just in America, but all over the world which is insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and why it's not a lifelong sentence. And you've done such incredible work and research on helping people understand how this develops and how it does not just develop in a day, a month, or a year. It takes many, many years and how we could stop putting fires to the flame or putting more extra wood to the fire and actually start reversing this now. Or if you are full-on insulin resistant or type 2 diabetic, there is promise, there is hope that you could actually reverse this and get this in the right direction. So I would like to ask you the first question is, how does insulin resistance actually develop? What are the root causes of this developing and then how does that lead to type 2 diabetes?
1: Yeah, sure. So there are several different ways that we can develop type 2 diabetes. Probably the biggest culprits that we face in modern society are, uh, are surrounding our eating habits and stress levels. So when it comes to eating habits, there's actually sort of two really frustrating causes of insulin resistance. One of them, and um, what I'm sure so many people here today are familiar with, is, you know, just eating the refined and processed sugars and fats and you know, when you go to a restaurant for a quote unquote real food meal, they give you like half a plate of starch and like this little tiny you know bit of non-starch um, with some, some animal protein. And so we're just uh, eating like this really high, you know, glucose sugar load or uh, inflammatory load from those processed and refined seed oils and uh, vegetable oils that we don't want to have. So eating these foods produces a lot of insulin in the body. So much so over time that the levels become toxic and they lead to the development of uh, hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. So that's what I think a lot of people uh, in the keto space do. And what we find is it's, it's sure. It's a, it's a great approach. is a dietary strategy I use to help get my health um, back on track. But what we often see is, you know, people they'll lose fifty of that eighty pounds, but they can't lose the last thirty. Yeah. Or their hemoglobin A one C, that diabetic you know, blood marker that doctors in the Western world fixate on in the, in their blood test results. You know, they'll get it down from nine, you know, to like five point eight. But why can't they get it to four point eight? You know, you really want to sort of be uh, less than five to to be out of that, you know, risky zone there. So a lot of people come and they'll say, hey, you know, now with the popularity of the lower carbon ketogenic diet, so it's great. But people will just say, hey, am I just so broken? Like, I can't make it the last three miles, you know, and is this as good as it gets for me? And that's where the second cause of insulin resistance from our nutritional perspective comes from is the meal frequency and people just eating often all day long. Every time we eat, we are gonna cause our insulin levels to go up a bit. So if you're snacking and you're grazing for hours every day, you're constantly filling up your system with drops of insulin some bigger drops some smaller drops depending on what it is that you're eating and at the end of the day that adds up to a lot it's like when you think that you you don't sit there and spend an hour on your phone at once but you check it periodically throughout the day and then you get that alarming message at the end of the week that you spend five hours a day on
0: your phone Great analogy. Yeah, <laughs> it
1: builds up it it adds up and that's what we being, you know, a really big culprit and driver of insulin resistance. And, you know, when I first started fasting, when I was sick, my grandmother with dementia was like the only advocate I had in my family. Everyone else saw I was losing my mind. And, you know, she said, we, we did perhaps maybe eat the best food growing up. But she said, you know, we ate three times a day and that was it, no snacks. Like your father wasn't allowed to have a snack before dinner. He'd ruin his appetite and he wasn't allowed to have a snack before bed and that meant he didn't eat enough at dinner. And we sure as heck didn't send him to school with pails of treats and a non-stop supply of food. And so, you know, things have definitely changed and we've definitely seen the correlation, you know, between those lifestyle changes when it came to eating habits and meal timing with type 2 diabetes. So, this meal frequency is just so critical to be mindful of and to stop always filling the body up with insulin.
0: So how long does it take on average before a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is made in the conventional space? How long has that been progressing before on average you're like, well, your A1C is 6.4 or higher and you're a type 2 diabetic? How long does that take?
1: Yeah, so it's actually pretty wild. And like even Western medicine that knows this doesn't even know it. So it takes about 10 to 15 years. Like it manifests and it builds up and it causes damage in that time. So, you know, Ben, you mentioned that when I was a, like a kid, I started in nephrology, mm-hmm. And we would start, you know, as time went on, we would start seeing more and more people in their 40s and their 50s having this unexplained kidney disease. They had no high blood pressure. They had no genetic markers, no autoimmune things were firing off. We can figure it out. So because they're relatively healthy on the surface, it, you know, we would send them for the invasive renal biopsy, kidney biopsy. Every single time, like clockwork, it came back with diabetic kidney disease, diabetic mm-hmm. nephropathy. And when we went back and looked at the the blood work is researchers and medical doctors we say but the a1c is 5.5 the a1c mm. is 5.6 mm. like you know we're approaching on that pre-diabetic range but we're not even in the borderline zone yet and that's how much damage is still happening so you know it might they might not get their diabetes diagnosis for another five years to let number creeps up but the damage is happening
0: Oh, perfect example of how broken the system is. It's like you got to wait for a diagnosis before they tell you to make some changes. So it's kind of twofold. You said it's high carbohydrate diets that are highly processed in combination with seed oils, and then the frequency. So therefore, if we just think logically, right, three macronutrients, we have Mm -hmm. carbohydrates, we have protein, we have fat. When we look at the glucose and insulin response, I'd like for you to break down, what are the glucose and insulin responses from those three macronutrients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when we eat carbohydrates, carbohydrates, they're chains of various lengths of simple sugars. Glucose is one that most of you are probably here of. you check your blood glucose level, you lose your glu- glucometer to check that. So these carbohydrates are various lengths and they're digested at various rates or whatnot. But when it comes to the glucose Glucose, the simple sugar itself, in order for it to get into our cells to provide our body with fuel, it's a hundred percent dependent on glucose. Or sorry, it's a hundred percent dependent on insulin to navigate that relationship to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So there are other factors, but it's very I always talk about glucose is like a toddler. And insulin is like the parent or the guardian of that toddler. And it is sort of responsible for orchestrating the events. The glucose just can't necessarily completely do it all on its own. And yes, there are other factors, but there's a large dependency there. So the more carbs you eat, the more sugar you eat, the more insulin you're gonna produce in response because of that dependency. And if the cells don't need it for energy, then the the insulin helps store that glucose. For use later on as glycogen or as body fat. When you eat protein, you don't really get this type of response. Protein is primarily a building block in the body. If we do consume maybe extreme excess of it, it will get converted to glucose, and we might see elevations uh, in glucose there because the body only does need so many building blocks. But protein has a ton of functions in the body. So there's sort of a minimal insulin response when it comes to eating protein. And then dietary fat, dietary fat has got so many roles in the body, and I actually love that it's called dietary fat because when people hear that they think of um, like body fat They they think of their gut and that, so they'll then visualize that butter in their gut. I'm like, no, it's that low fat, low loaf of bread. That is your what's causing your gut, not the butter that's causing your gut. So I wish dietary fat had a different name or body fat had a different name just so we could further distinguish the two. But the insulin response there is virtually negligible. So, I mean, if you're looking to prevent this disease from happening or or getting worse, then you don't want to add fuel to the fire. So if you're constantly pounding back the carbohydrates, you're going to be constantly producing the insulin in large volumes, and that's going to be problematic. So eating a diet that's higher, and prioritizes natural uh, occurring healthy fats, and then has a good amount of protein in it that you can lean in. Protein is so awesome because it really helps crush sugar cravings. It's got so many beneficial roles, and especially as we age, we need more of it, and then minimizing the carbohydrate intake and you know like why would you add fuel to the fire so eating like a ketogenic diet or a variation of a low carbohydrate diet really helps minimize adding fuel to the fire if you have the disease or it can help prevent it in the long term
0: Great breakdown of the three macronutrients. Just understanding that alone, it makes sense why a low-carb ketogenic approach can actually lower glucose and insulin levels. I love the comparison of glucose being the child, uh, you said, and insulin being the parent. Is that what you said? Yeah. Great analogy. And When we look at the standard American diet and compare that to what the human body is designed to use as fuel... I know that there's about optimal levels of sugar in the bloodstream. The entire bloodstream is about one teaspoon, right? Mm-hmm. which is about 80 milligrams per deciliters. If you're checking your blood sugar, that would be an optimal rate. The liver could store about 100 to 120 grams of uh, glucose. And then this muscle, depending on how much muscle you have, about 400 grams. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of an average, but it changes depending on you know how much muscle you have, how big you are, et cetera. But let's say that is the average. And then we look at what the average american is eating, right? We think about an açaí bowl. A lot of people say, "Oh, yeah. I, I'm healthy. I have my açaí bowl for <laughs> breakfast." I have the stats right here. 117 grams of sugar in an açaí bowl. 16 ounces of orange juice. It's it's a fruit, right? Uh, 52 grams of sugar. And then, you know, a can of soda is 9 teaspoons of sugar as well. So you can think about what's happening here when we're flooding the body of glucose, insulin's job—one of the jobs of insulin—is to take that, that parent of insulin to take the kid of glucose to the cells for energy. But then, what happens when those cells get full? What happens next, Megan?
1: Well, then your body has to store it for fat. Um, my colleague Jason loves to use the analogy of a wallet versus a bank. Yeah. Your wallet mm-hmm. can only store so much cash; it has a, a limited capacity. Whereas the bank, you know, theoretically, has an unlimited capacity. I, I don't. know. <laughs> Copious quantities of cash, but I assume Bill Gates has his money in a
0: bank. So <laughs> well, it's a great analogy. I always give that analogy too that Jason, has, Dr. Fung has given. So it's like, yeah, the the benefit of using your wallet, your your uh, glycogen store is easy access, right? It's yeah. like easy to put cash in, take cash cash out, you burn glucose, use glucose. The drawback is, like you said, limited storage capacity. And then a bank safe, it's like the drawback of using a bank safe is that it'll take longer to get to. You got to drive to the yeah. bank, wait in line. But then the benefit is like you have almost unlimited storage capacity in the form I'll of a box.
1: That's like yeah, exactly that. And then like going to the bank to take out cash—it's a huge pain. Um, yep. So trying to access that, uh, you know, stored e- energy in your fat and is a huge pain. Uh, and then the fat cells accumulate other stuff, which isn't cool or good for your health, and you know can cause stress on the body as you start to burn fat. So it's hugely annoying. You know, keep a good amount of cash in your wallet for easy access. Minimize the number of times you have to go go to the bank to withdraw. So, you know, when we're constantly eating these carbs, our wallet can is at capacity all of the time. So we are just constantly going and dumping money into the bank. I like using the analogy too of a gas tank. And I know I live in America now, but I still do everything in liters. I've yet to convert to, <laughs> to the system, but imagine there's like a government mandate that you must buy an entire tank of fuel every day or they're going to throw you in jail. I, we don't live in that type of society. <laughs> Maybe we do with some parts, but, but you work from home like I do. So like I go to acupuncture and I go to the gym, Like but I'm not driving for miles a day, right? So to avoid going to jail, if I'm not emptying my tank, I'm going to have to fill up gas canisters, eventually they fill up my car, my garage, my house, my backyard, and everything becomes this toxic load because I'm constantly having to fuel when I don't need fuel. And that's what we're doing, especially with our, like what we're eating and how often we're eating. Like we wake up, we eat, we go to work, we have a donut, we have a coffee break in the morning, lunch, like it's nonstop. It's chaotic, right? You're buying like three, full tanks of fuel a day, and you're barely driving your body at all. So of course, you're going to store it. And then you've got so much fuel tanks, so many fat cells at the brim, like you are just a toxic hazardous zone.
0: Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised, to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. So you mentioned uh, the A1C might not even change for many, many years. Meanwhile, there could be kidney damage, there could be insulin resistance being developed. That's not to say you shouldn't t- test your A1C, yeah. by the way. Um, we had Dr. Boz here on um, last Wednesday. She She loves you, by the way. She adores you. And she was explaining the benefits of the A1C. But she also showed you all to she mentioned she recommended looking at fasting glucose and postprandial mm-hmm. glucose maybe you could explain a little bit about what you use in the fasting methods with your students on how to gauge that with the A1C but also those postprandial glucose responses yeah
1: yeah and i definitely want like A1C is great it's a piece of the puzzle
0: mm-hmm.
1: and really you know we don't want to neglect any pieces there's not one all solution or one all answer or guidance. So we got to look at the puzzle. So it's definitely a great piece of the puzzle. You know, just sort of at the most basic level, we like checking someone's glucose when they first wake up um, or within, you know, the first 90 minutes of them waking up just to sort of see what that glucose response is. We get, you know, a surge of cortisol first thing in the morning. That also affects the glucose. And we just want to see, okay, how high does it get? How bad does it get? In the morning time, people with excess... with diabetic related issues, they'll start to see elevations in their morning blood sugar level that start to creep outside of the normal range. And that is a big red flag. So we like to check that. We like to check sort of a baseline. So before they have anything to eat, I sit down and have a meal and then track it, you know, an hour later and two hours later, just to sort of see what their glucose response is. I mean, it's kind of a shoddy version of an oral glucose tolerance yeah. test at home, but it gives you some really great data. I love CGMs. It's like a CGM and everyone. I wish they'd get better because even like the fancy or want, I have a Dexcom G6 and even then it's kind of okay but at least it helps you identify um, identify trends yep. which are really really important you know I, I was uh, an insulin um, they do uh, craft tests. It's like an oral glucose tolerance test that you go to get that quote unquote diabetes diagnosis, but they actually check insulin instead of glucose. And that's pretty cool. We were able to do that in Toronto for a while just because of public health and how uh, we were able to operate in Toronto, Canada. Things are, it's a little bit more finicky uh, in the United States and well in other places in Canada. But that's a cool gold standard, you know, kind of strategy or, or one of them. So really just looking at that glucose response to, to food, I think, is important.
0: So important. What are your thoughts on a getting a fasting insulin done?
1: I love a fasting insulin. The only thing is it's a little volatile. So we had this problem in Toronto. We had a lot of flexibility in our province and we had public health care. Um, so an insulin test was like a dollar thirteen to the government. It was super cheap, wow. and Ontario is just a really big province, so there weren't that many regulations. Whereas if you were in British Columbia or Quebec and you were not an endocrinologist, you'd have to get permission to order an insulin test on your patients. Mm. Uh, and then in the U.S., you know, there's costs and, and and whatnot, and finding a doctor too sometimes that will order it can be prohibitive. But there's a lot more private options though here, which is great because uh, you can pretty much, if you do a little research, you can Get your insulin checked. Mm-hmm. So, we were talking them all the time in turnaround houses. We had this flexibility and we would just see that they could be volatile depending. Uh, one day I got rented on the way to work. My car wasn't that damaged, but then my tire blew. Oh, <laughs> I was like two hours late. The clinic was so annoyed. They had to reschedule my patients. It was a disaster. So, I said, you know, just for kicks. I want to test my fasting insulin because now um, my patients have been canceled, might as well. And my insulin was quite elevated compared to where it usually sits at that moment. And then the next day I checked it after a good night of sleep and processing the, the hectic day before, and it was back down to usual. So we cool. would see these bizarre fluctuations, but we were just checking it too often. So most people are checking it not as often. You know, we love if a person can get it done every three months when they're trying to go through the recovery and doing it at that frequency, you should usually see it trend Downwards. Yeah. The problem is the reference range in this country and in my home country is just such garbage. Mm-hmm. It's just you want to be at that very low, and you definitely in the United States, you want to be below five and even, you know, like three and two is okay. You know, that idea sometimes people ask, Hey, is it too low? Like, I, you know, my last one was like 2.12. And the thing is, if I were to eat carbohydrates, it would go up. So I have that ability, unlike a type one diabetic, who if they were to sit down and eat an entire potato with nothing else, their insulin would not um, be able to go up. So that's really sort of the biggest difference. So if you know that that's not a problem for you, and you're eating a, a low carb ketogenic diet, and you're fasting, and your insulin is sort of in this you know lower end of the range that functional medicine dictates is optimal, then you know the, I get. The reason why I'm sharing this is because every day someone asks me, my daughter, my doctor now thinks I have type 1 diabetes. Um, is so more insulin? yeah, yeah. And, and it's like two, like, it's, yeah. it's really
0: cool. kind of crazy. I have a okay. First clarifying thing here is you mentioned when you had you got into a car accident, you were late to work, there was stress, so it was mental, emotional stress. What's the mecha- What's the mechanism there that drove insulin up? I know cortisol went up for you glucose followed cortisol, did insulin mm-hmm. bump up because yeah. that?
1: So stress hormone cortisol, it's produced by adrenal glands to help us deal with the stress. I mean, the body's trying to do us a favor by producing it. But to to your point, it has this hormonal cascade of things that we do not really want to happen or we want to minimize the frequency at these stressful events, right, or the severity of it. So the cortisol then causes the body to produce insulin. We get a glucose response, too, as part of that stress response, which, you know, promotes insulin so everything that's happening the whole hormonal domino effect shoots off production of insulin within the body and that's why stress is a huge culprit and stress you know even with a fairly decent diet can sometimes alone chronic stress we we know chronic stress will kill us i was you know chatting with jason fine not that long ago about someone who was under chronic stress and he said you need to tell them to stop because it's just going to kill them and cancer Mm -hmm. and diabetes is not good Need to give them uh, this advice. It's a, a personal uh, friend we were discussing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just really important to try to avoid or minimize that cortisol response.
0: So, what's the difference between that mental, emotional cortisol response and actually exercise? Because we see the same thing mm-hmm. in a way. When, when you exercise, you have a CGM on or you check your glucose, glucose mm-hmm. goes up and then back down. What's the difference in those two responses?
1: Yeah, people say the same thing with fasting too, because like the mm-hmm. like people say, isn't fasting just like extreme calorie restriction? No, it's not. In calorie restriction, your metabolism just slows down to meet your caloric intake, and it you know cuts off cognitive function, cardiovascular, respiratory, reproductive function. That's why people on low-carbohydrate diets feel like garbage. But when you're fasting, you actually have this nervous system response, and this for me is kind of like the the golden nugget thing that I like to throw at people when they say, hey, isn't it just the same but more intense? No, you're actually activating the sympathetic nervous system, that flight or fight nervous system. And then people panic because they associate that with stress. Well, there's this whole concept of hormesis
0: Thursday we had Dr. Okay. Pampa and Mindy, and we went into the principle of hormesis. So go even deeper. I love that you just brought it right. up. Yeah.
1: So it's about finding like the right amount of of stress. So it's important that we understand that too much or too little of anything is. Bad for us. So, like in type 1 diabetes, not having that ability to output insulin, we know that's bad. In type 2 diabetes, having an abundance of insulin, we know that that's bad. And it's kind of our human nature, I think, to always lean into an extreme of things rather than find that middle ground. So, it's the same thing. Like, we, with stress on the body, too little stress. So, we're never going to become resilient beings. We're just going to decay. And, you know, but it's not good for us. And too much stress is also detrimental and can lead to all of these funky and conditions. Yeah. So we just want to find like the right amount of stress for us that challenges our body. I always like to equate it to working out at the gym. Yeah. Like if you're 2023, 20, I'm going to go to the gym for the first time in 30 years. You're not going to walk in there and do the same weight training program as someone who's worked out four times a week for the last 30 years. So if bicep curls are your goal, like you're not going to be picking up those 50 pound dumbbells right away. Like maybe 10 is challenging. And for people who do work out, you know if you pick up one pound dumbbells, you're not stressing your muscles at all. It's kind of a little bit moot. At least you're moving. That's good for your body. But your if your goal is to grow muscle, you're not going to because you're not inflicting those micro tears those minor stressors on the body to get those muscles to grow so when we go to the gym everybody knows you've got to pick a weight that is challenging but not too challenging so you can reach your sort of desired goals and then once that becomes easy then you increase it and you find that sweet spot with where it's challenging but where you're not going to tear something rip something or hurt yourself because that's too much stress that's too intense so And we talk about this with fasting too. You know, there's a ton of people who, you know, want to do a five-day fast every single week, week in and week out. 2016 was the year of that in my program. And it's like that's kind of like, you know, walking into the gym and always, you know, going like preparing like the next day you're doing the biggest competition of your life. You can't live at high speed all of the time. So it's about finding a balance sort of in between. So I mean, that's you know, to us and, and how we try to teach Hermesis to our clients.
0: That's a perfect explanation. It makes sense with the exercise. Everybody gets that. Stress is only bad when you don't adapt to it, right? And you mm-hmm. want to find the right amount of stress that you could adapt to, which includes fasting. Fasting is a stress. And if your body adapts to that stress, it's so wonderful what could take place. It harnesses the innate intelligence. But if you are too aggressive with your fasting, like doing a five-day water fast every week, too much for your body to adapt. Now that hormetic curve drop them benefiting you actually lose the benefits and actually could hurt yourself like if you do a crossfit workout after doing no exercise for for many many years so great explanation there we'll get a little bit more into fasting in a second but just to close the landing plane on the conversation on insulin and you mentioned some doctors will see like a insulin of a fasting insulin of like 2.1 or 2.0 and they'll think oh you might be type 1 diabetic At that point, would you suggest or what are your thoughts on also getting a C-peptide done? And maybe you could explain what a C-peptide is and if there's any value in looking at that as well.
1: Yeah, so C-peptides are manufactured by beta cells. Beta cells are the insulin-producing cells in our, our pancreas. They're largely responsible for insulin production. So the idea is if we measure... C-peptides in your blood serum that it will give us an indicator of how many you know, functioning beta cells that you have. But there's caveats with this too that I find with insulin levels. People who follow a ketogenic diet, who are fasting regularly, they have low insulin demands. So their beta cells are not flushing out tons of C-peptides for us to measure. So they also tend to fall at the lower end of the normal reference range, which then causes some doctors to panic as well. And we've checked, we would always check fasting insulin and C-peptides every single time. I like doing it at baseline so we could get more of an indicator of the pancreas and its flexibility. How over functioning is it? Is it bogged down with so much fat it can't function? Or hey, you know, are we looking at latent onset type 1 diabetes here because they've just burned the heck out of their pancreas from, you know, causing it to produce so much insulin over the years, which we do see sometimes. So it's good at baseline. It's good to follow along with, with fasting insulin too, but we do see that trend. So, you know, the idea is if you do decide to go and, you know, eat that whole potato on its own, you will see those C peptides go up just like you'll see the insulin levels go up as well. But I think it's a great test to check at baseline. It's a great test to check periodically. Every now and then we get someone who's in our community and not uh, in our coaching program. And they're, they're really just kind of struggling with those blood sugar levels. And we'll say, okay, you know, take, have a meal, have some, you know, starch at that meal, and then go get your C peptides and fasting insulin checked. And let's just see You know how much it's producing. You know, hour uh, after you eat those foods, or uh, one to two hours after you eat those foods, and sometimes it doesn't go up at all, but the sugar stays alarmingly high for hours, Mm. and that's an indicator that okay, maybe there's more latent onset stuff, or maybe some more autoimmune stuff that's manifesting later on in life that we need to take a look at. But then, if the person eats that starch and all of their numbers go up, then you know, hey, you know, the the pancreas is. in working order. So we don't need to, our diet and lifestyle is not hindering us. And that's what we found through our clinical chronic checking of these
0: values. Yeah, and you've checked a lot. I mean, tens yeah. and tens of thousands of patients over the years. The uh, last thing on insulin before we transition to fasting is insulin has an important role, right? It's not, it's not bad unless it's called all the time. So Is there a problem with chronically low levels of insulin? Meaning somebody who's never having carbs, they years of ketosis, years of low carb, and they have chronically low levels of insulin. Can that be problematic?
1: So, I mean, it's an interesting question. Insulin does have a variety of roles within the body. I do like to consciously spike my insulin levels intermittently. You know, just, I think intermittency is really sort of a, a key for great things in life. So I will consciously spike it. I'm doing fertility stuff right now. So I'm not really doing ketogenic diet right now so i'm eating some starch and a little bit of fruit and small portions with each meal because it can you know there's relationships there with sex hormones and stuff that's important so it really sort of i found for men that we've worked with that longer term keto doesn't necessarily seem to be as problematic but most people inadvertently spike their insulin levels um, Because of the state of society and our relationship with foods, our brain knows that the food gives us a dopamine response. So most men do. Women, I do think there are benefits for women for spiking it periodically. For women who are perimenopausal, postmenopausal, in that stage of their their life, I do try to encourage carb cycling a couple times a week um, for hormonal benefits. For women who are like me, and are sort of going through the baby-making ordeal, it's okay to be lower carb the first couple of weeks of the cycle, but that, you know, having that insulin, having that carbs can be beneficial for progesterone in the second half of the cycle. And progesterone's really what's key for keeping, you know, your endometrial lining. Um, But estrogen and progesterone are both very important, but progesterone is really the nourishment that helps you know make that embryo stick so with younger women who are maybe combining pcos while they're trying to do fertility at the same time then we sort of have these two-week cycles where we try to spike it lesser in the first half and a little bit not necessarily spike keep it a little bit more constant and elevated in the second half
0: well said. Yeah, completely agree. You know, that's the whole principle behind keto flex. It's right intentionally flexing out, which Megan does. And it's important to do that. We have so many brilliant people in the keto space, low-carb space, and it's okay if we don't agree, right? Sometimes that happens. But when I interview people like um, Dr. Benjamin Bickman, you're familiar with his work, Megan? Yeah. yeah. Love him, incredible human being, so smart. He believes in like long-term ketosis and, and not really flexing out. But I asked him the question: I'm like, do you ever flex out? Like, are there times where in your life you have ice cream where you have this with your kids? And he says, Yeah, sometimes, you know, at family events, I'll do that. So, like to your point, most people are flexing out whether it's intentionally or not. And there is a benefit to that. Men can get away with a little bit more strict, rigorous ketosis. Women have to go with their hormonal cycle, like you mentioned. But there is a time and place to do it. And carbs are not evil. We just want to work on the metabolism first. So there is some you know, due diligence in the beginning to work that metabolism up to a point where you actually could process those carbs like Megan is doing in a healthy way. So that's an important point because insulin is important for these hormonal conversions. It's important for building progesterone. It's I've also seen in, in men, Megan, those men who do keto for long-term, whether it's like a year or, or longer, I see their sex hormone binding globulin go up, their testosterone drops a little bit, yeah. and sometimes their TSH goes up, so their, their thyroid gets a little wonky. And so I'm not a big believer of uh, anything that's too extreme.
1: I've kind of gone into nutrient genomics testing with people just to help them kind of evolve their diet. I truly think intermittency is the key for everything in life. Like w- women who are listening today, maybe more so than men, maybe men women rarely use the same bottle of shampoo. For like three months, let alone like three true? three years. <laughs> yeah, you got to change it up, right? I didn't
0: know that. Women um... watching, let me know. Right <laughs> <the
1: truth. laughs> and our skincare regimens, right, ladies? Like when the seasons change, we have to adjust our huh? skincare regimens. I, I moved from Toronto to California, totally different coast. I geek out over like natural skincare, but I geek out over like optimizing my skin, and I, I had to change things up because it you know affects it, and so it's. It just kind of like you know, we talk about sometimes the fasting method rolling your diet with the season to create a bit more right. variability yeah. being so important so intermittencies in general very beneficial to us all actually to ben's point we have this one gentleman and i have his permission to share i never share without asking for permission and there's always these interesting cases so i usually preemptively ask but he was like so strict carnivore for about five years wow. and now we're showing symptoms of type one diabetes wow. like pancreatic burnout type one diabetes late and onset not necessarily so much autoimmune and he's gone through the gamut of genetic testing and this and that because he's got these resources that are great and just like you said sex binding globulin hormone up testosterone it's just kind of like a hot mess and he was just like no no carnivore is the way carnivore is the way zero carbs is the way mm. like zero like zero insulin production is the way you know And it's just we tend to have always taken a a bit more of a moderate, intermittent approach with nutrition in addition to fasting. And now it's just trying to reintroduce that. And I hear so many people they start like really super strict keto or like a carnivore i think it's great to cycle through this stuff you um do. absolutely and then they just think it is all that they need to do and i can i did this and i ended up you know really affecting my thyroid my adrenal function my endometrial lining went super thin because the you know the progesterone and everything was just a little bit out of balance and i started to feel like garbage you know 3 years down the road so it's being interesting. Intermittent with it has been really helpful. Um, and I, I see this with people all the time, especially women. But you know, if you start keto, it's great. One of the things I love about your program, and you know, is that they're like you've got to introduce it down the path once that healing starts to happen. You've got to do that keto flex. And you know, sometimes people really struggle. So I'll recommend some nutrient. G- nutrient genomic testing i'm not saying that right nutrigenomics, um, nutri-genomics. <laughs> i am like um i'm totally hormone space brain right now <laughs> but, uh,
0: you're doing great uh,
1: those for other reasons but um it, it just kind of helps you know guide people to where you know it, it's not as bad as it used to be it used to be not so great but the testing I think is kind of cool nowadays and it helps show people that okay maybe we need to change things and, and there's a roadmap, you know yeah. here to help
0: yeah it gives you some clues which is great you know of course epigenetics rules but this kind of gives you clues and what you should mm-hmm. lean to uh for the yeah. epigenetics if you watch any of my videos on social media you always see me with glasses on and I always get the question hey why are you wearing those glasses These are called blue light blocking glasses, and I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs If you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the signs to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. Glasses for every need. Bon Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF slash 5G protection, and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave Keto Camp podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash Keto Camp and use the coupon code Keto Camp at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out. And let's get back to this episode. All right, fasting. We both love fasting. It's such an incredible tool. Nothing new about it. You and Dr. Fung are like the pioneers for fasting. You were preaching it, you were teaching it, you were leading it before it got to where it is today. Now we live in a world where most people have heard about fasting. It's easier to post on social media without being attacked. So thank you for that, <laughs> making it popular. But there's a lot of misconceptions. My question to you right off the bat with fasting is like, we see a lot of studies that come out saying intermittent fasting does not work for weight loss. Intermittent fasting does some whatever it is negative to your thyroid. What are, you, what are your thoughts on those studies? And how can those watching here understand that we don't want to fall for the headline? We want to see exactly how the study was conducted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you really got to look and like look at the research. There was one recently, and uh, it was just like it was just sort of time restricted eating. You know, you were only eating one meal a day every day, but there were no restrictions on what you could have outside yeah. of that one meal. So it's kind of mind boggling. So if you're chugging sodas and like energy drinks and like loading your coffee up with sugar all day long or drinking juice, like of course you're not going to get right results. So you really got to look at what their methodology is, what the parameters of the study is. All these randomized control trials comparing alternate daily fasting to calorie restriction. They follow these people for like 30, 40 weeks and they do true fasting with them. Zero calories, water and the calorie restriction groups reducing their calories by like four or 500 calories a day. Every single one of them shows incredible benefits, especially when it comes to weight loss because that's the focus of most of these RCTs to fasting. But all these little headline grabbing things, they're usually looking at forms of time-restricted eating and there's huge benefits of time-restricted eating, um, but the controls are not very good. So there's a lot of garbage foods and, and other things. And if you take a population with insulin resistance too. Like if you have insulin resistance, your insulin levels don't really even start to fall until around the 24 hour mark of a fast. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing like 16 or 18 hours or 14, 18 hours of daily fasting, it's just not enough. It's not therapeutic. It's great to keep someone in good health. And it's just a good practice. If we all did time-restricted eating, we'd have such less rates of obesity, type two diabetes, metabolic issues, I believe. But that's starting from a, relatively healthy population or that's when you get to a relatively healthy place if you've got a disease you need a therapeutic approach so hormonally that insulin doesn't stop we're we're doing like a a course right now um a january cohort like a lot of people are doing to help reset and most of these people they're like oh we're doing 14 16 18 hours or one meal a day or 24 hours a few times a week and we really weren't losing anything or it was just kind of yo-yoing and it's like well you're all insulin resistant like you're not even dropping it enough to start to see the the healing benefits of fasting in the first place so that often you know goes totally ignored in the science we're, yeah. we're actually my colleague dr nadia pataguana and i were actually talking about this at low carb uh denver uh, and we'll see you there ben um yeah next month just to help people like time-restricted eating is good and therapeutic fasting is good and there's differences between the two and these this research on it like you gotta you've got to pay attention to what it's looking at we're going to talk about some of the more controversial studies that have come up that have really kind of made people question fasting but the controls just weren't there and the assessment of the population being tested was not there either
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see you and Nadia. I love Nadia too. And it's it funny, Megan, because we are I consider you a great friend of mine and also somebody that I, a mentor as well. I've never met you in person. <laughs> We've never met each other in person. This is going to be the third yeah. time next month in Denver. If uh, For those watching, if you live in Denver, Low Carb Denver is the conference. I think it's the third week of February. I'll be there. Megan's going to be there. Nadia, it's going to be a great weekend. So we'll give you a, a link for that. Um, Alina, we have a coupon code. I could find it, but we can take care of that later. So hope to see some of you there. I love that you recommended. So here's a teaching note for all you watching. Put this in your notes in your um, homework assignment here. If you're insulin resistant, it's going to require longer fasting, right? more than 24 hours to really drop those insulin levels. You would build up to that. If you're brand new to fasting, you wouldn't just go out and do a 32-hour fast or a 40-hour fast. You'd build the muscle. But keep that in mind. You got to be a little bit more aggressive to drop those insulin levels beyond 24 hours. The billion-dollar question, though, because I don't think we have a concrete answer to this, is at what point during a fast does autophagy start to get ramped up? (laughs) (laughs) right? And I know that some researchers have measured this in clinics uh, looking at the LC3A protein, which is showing you autophagy is occurring, but we can't do that at home. So what is your best estimate? I know it's different for somebody who's uh, insulin resistant versus somebody who's metabolically healthy. So what do you, what do you think it's starting to happen with somebody who's insulin resistant and then somebody who's metabolically healthy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So like, likewise, we couldn't measure it, but we've got like, you know, 20 ish, 30,000 people now that we've had these observations and, People who end up doing like the 36 hour fast three times a week or a little bit more, 36 hours is when you eat three meals on your eating day, 42 is like if you eat two, 48 is if you, know, you eat one. Um, but like, like when you're doing that, like say Sunday night to Tuesday night, so you're getting in that full day of fast. So... In our baseline clinic patients, our baseline, our initial um, pilot group, they had the option of doing 324s or 336s. We're talking 100 years ago now, but that was all our clinic would allow us to do with patients at the time. Those who did the 336-hour fasts a week, they didn't have loose skin. Those who did the 24-hour fasts, which sometimes ended up being more like 20 to 24-hour fasts, those were the ones where they would have a loose skin. So, we use this as a marker. And then we noticed more. We started reporting these observations from our patients. Those in the 36 hour group, skin tags are going away, scars were improving. These other observational signs that autophagy is actually occurring in these patients, that was not happening in the 24 hour less group. People who really stuck to that, you know, sort of one meal a day, three times a week protocol. They are the ones that ended up needing sort of skin removal surgery if they reached a certain amount of weight loss over time. The other ones didn't. The most astounding patient, he was one of our very first patients. He was five foot six, came in in a wheelchair that day, fasting for diabetes. He was in rough shape from a car accident several years ago, needed to lose weight, needed to get off the insulin so he could lose weight to help, so he could hopefully improve his mobility. Older guy, Anyways, he ended up losing a hundred and sixty-five pounds. This man religiously fasted three times a week for thirty-six hours. Wow. He was a, just a, a robotic saint, you know, with it, and did his great TRE. Oh, <laughs> Like the compliance was like, I'm real. So, I mean, he's older, you know, at a point he was walking with a cane, which was super cool after some of the weight loss. But he said to us one day, he said, Dr. Fong, Megan, like, why don't I have loose skin? He's like, I'm old, I'm immobile, I'm in rough shape. It doesn't hmm. make sense. He's like, I've, I've heard the stories. I know Megan's lost 80 pounds, but Megan, like at the time I was like 28, right? So you think everything's possible for 20 year olds. So, you know, I get why she did it. She's in her twenties and why she doesn't have loose skin and she must be a maniac at the gym and that must melt away skin. Like that That was his thought, like it is for so many people. And Jason and I just looked at each other and we're like, i oh <laughs> like so that's just what we found so when someone you know who has been doing more 24s who's a little bit more concerned about the loose skin we push it to the longer fast and then when we're working with people who that is a goal for them to happen and we know that they have insulin resistance we do sort of start with a minimum of the 36 hour protocol so they're trying to achieve autophagy concurrently with tackling insulin related issues uh, and it's amazing (laughs) like every now and then a woman will show up on the other side of the screen and start to pull down her pants and i'm a little bit caught (laughs) off guard but they want to show me that hey you know i had kids 30 years ago and my c-section scar is gone um so that's what we tend to drive people with i know jason really doesn't believe that from his looking at everything that in the insulin resistant population it doesn't even start you know, till after that 24-hour mark. So wow. whenever we get these individuals in, we try to do it. And clinically, what he's saying, we do see it observa- observationally.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, that's for somebody who's metabolically challenged a little bit. What about somebody like, like me? When do you yeah. think... <laughs> you estimate I'm
1: getting a top. No, so I, I, you know, we typically tell people, you know, seven eight hours after a meal, um, between eight and really? fourteen hours is what I tell people. Okay. Yeah, yeah these course. are just based on conversations with Jason and sort of our gathering of the literature and what we also experience, but I don't really know. Uh, And I usually tell people, we don't, we don't really know. We just know that you're, you know, within that 24 hours, if you're doing that, like if someone's in maintenance and they want to do a 24 hour fast once a week, you're probably getting a good amount uh, of autophagy. If you're eating a good diet, you're exercising, you're being... mindful of TRE, there's you know, probably some low-grade benefits all of the time.
0: Yeah. And if you do exercise in the fastest state, you might even get there faster too. Awesome. Okay. Let's get to, to VIP QA. and a uh, this is not medical advice, just to reiterate that. Uh, when I fast over 48 hours says tomorrow, I stop sleeping. I'm wondering if that is too much stress until I get better fat adapted. Do I need to do keto first? I just started fasting.
1: Yeah, so a bunch of great questions, not necessarily sort of super duper um, straight answers. So there's many hormone changes that happen to women um, and hormones that get unbalanced, sex hormones as a result of insulin resistance that can affect sleep. But if you're someone who noticed a definite correlation between fasting and sleep disturbances, you know, it could be a temporary effect of so some other hormonal changes that are happening. And you know, I know Jason always likes to blame it on the noradrenaline. So one of those counter-regulatory hormones that helps us lose weight. So we like it. It helps us lose, burn that body fat. It helps maintain our resting metabolic rate, but it also leaves us feeling, you know, a little energized. Sometimes people feel a little anxious or a little shaky when they're fasting. So I mean, there's different things that you can do. In a very general level, you know, magnesium. well-absorbed magnesium like glycinate you know for example can help counteract some of that in some cases we'll use like l-theanine and gaba to help counteract that too if it's really bad usually if it's sort of fasting induced and noradrenaline related if you stay consistent with those forty-eights over a period of two or three weeks the sleeping actually gets better so that's something that you know we we encourage people to do so you know, you can always scale back your fast and build your fasting muscle up slowly a good transitional strategy that we talk a lot about it is sort of the 3016 where people are eating once a day for 6 days of the week but they're alternating the meals so say lunch and dinner so lunch monday Tuesday dinner, and that's a 30-ish hour fast. So it's super annoying. No one likes following it long-term, but it's not meant to be, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it can just help. We'll use it in gout cases, acid reflux cases, when people have really Mm -hmm. bad GERD before they start fasting. So it just sort of helps the body acclimate a little bit more slowly to the fast. We're still getting in some longer periods of fasting here, here or there. So you could try that. Do you need to do ketogenic first? It definitely, I think, helps. Uh, if you can do a ketogenic diet first. And most of the patients Jason and I saw in clinic didn't. Not everyone in our business, um, the fasting method does it either. And they fast and and they do just fine. But I think that keto and fasting are a really great combo when you're trying to combat that insulin resistance head on at the start.
0: Yeah, great answer. I agree 100%. Okay, next question from Bonnie. Do you ever recommend us doing a glucose tolerance test?
1: Um, it's it's interesting I know so the stuff that they make you drink is like this orange syrup garbage from heck that like cola right? yeah none of you would ever want to drink it like even a lot of people I'm immersed with right now are are doing the pregnancy thing um, and they're like totally they're like we do not want to put that in our body with a baby in it like are you kidding me Um, so how do I talk my, my doctors out of this and I do think the test is, is interesting, but you know, there's other ways that you can do it. Sometimes I'll encourage, like when we were working with patients in the clinic or encouraged people's like, no, you know what, I'm going to eat some starch, you know, first, and I won't eat anything else. And I'll be, you know, my 12, 14 hours fasted and I'll have some starch and then I'll do the oral glucose tolerance test. I know a few women recently are pregnant that came to that consensus with the doctor when the doctor would accept CGM results too. Um, I think the test results are are cool and very telling. It's just the mechanism and means to get there, I think, are kind of
0: crummy. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's not ideal. Two more questions from Bonnie. Thoughts on using a Trantil? I don't know if you're familiar with that supplement Mm -hmm. for Stebo. And then what's your favorite sweetener for recipes? Which ones are good versus evil? Yeah,
1: so I I don't know if you remember, Ben, but when I was living in this mold-filled house and having all these issues, I actually reached out to you to help troubleshoot. And at the time, you had recommended this to me. Uh, I'm pretty sure... (laughs) It was, yeah, uh, and it was super helpful. I mean, yeah. of course, removing myself from that environment was like the most helpful thing. Yes. But it definitely helped. I mean, when you got a house in a, in a city like Toronto, it's not super easy just to pick up and, and move. It's like living in San Francisco or New York City, so it's financially stressful. So it it was really, really helpful. And since I've learned about it from you, I've recommended to so many people to help them with SIBO, or I've learned from our community since we started talking about it, that a lot of people have been using it now for quite some time and have noticed some really great benefits. In terms of if you need a sweetener for a recipe, which one is the least of the evils? I'm not, actually, I don't know where Ben sits on this. So I'm more of a fan of natural things and things that are more minimally, minimally processed. So even with my diabetic community, I'll typically recommend like honey and pure maple syrup. So like manuka honey, for example, or pure maple syrup if they need it for something. Or I know like sometimes people like to have like protein pancakes here and there and Put a drop or two of pure maple syrup in a cup of butter, and you know, use that to pour over those um, those protein pancakes. So I'm more of a fan of those. I'm not really opposed to monk fruit, too, if people need it um, periodically. I've just seen so much gastrointestinal distress that really drives people off track when using sugar alcohols and uh, things like stevia and it's just like kind of a a poor nightmare because they get they end up going into the sinkhole with it with distress and then eating helps but not eating like the cravings are for the wrong things and it just ends up being kind of a bit of a nightmare and i don't notice that as much with monk fruit and yeah again i i don't actually find that there's too much of an insulin response with pure maple syrup either so maybe that's it's just my Canadian um, yeah.
0: supporting that, but your Canadian bias there—that's good. Uh, and if you're using like honey or uh, maple syrup, you're not overdoing it. You're just giving it enough to give you that sweetness, that, that mild sweetness. Yeah. Next question is: Can you clarify on the 36-hour fast for GERD?
1: Yeah. So if you have GERD, fasting can sometimes make it worse before it makes it better, but it does get better. So it can absolutely help with GERD. So when someone presents themselves to me with GERD, we just go low and slow with the fasting scale. You know, if someone shows up without GERD and they want to jump into doing the first fast ever being 48, we usually kind of test the waters and see how the first one maybe goes and talk about pivot plans if it's not going so well, you know, 18 hours into it, what they can do. But with GERD, we don't, Tend to do that; it can act up. It's one of those sort of rare times too, where people want to come off as much medication as possible. I was Mm -hmm. actually talking to someone in our community about this. Maybe for a few weeks, you still want to lean into it, and then start to test the waters without it. You know, of course, you seek your doctor's um, guidance on this. We found it can just make a bit of an easier transition to fasting. Then you can fast without pain, without it increasing your GERD. You're feeling better. You're eating now. Without experiencing it, you never need those medications again and you can focus on your healing. And then that's the optimal goal. It usually takes about four to six weeks. Um, so go low and slow with the fasting. Some natural things people sometimes say they help, sometimes they say they don't, like the raw filtered apple cider vinegar and lemon juice. We'll typically shy a little bit more away from broth and focus on like salty water or different forms of sodium um, during this time because we find that broth can sometimes sort of exacerbate it too. So, you know, we really just by that six week mark, our goal is for the person to be able to fast and eat with ease for however long that they want to fast for too. And, you know, have things like broth if they want to have it as well.
0: Fantastic tips. Okay. A couple more questions, one here and then one on the community tab. So the final question here is from Bonnie. Do you, do you recommend any pancreatic digestive enzymes for keto dieting for those with a faulty gallbladder?
1: Um, sometimes people do find benefits from ox bile. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. people will take like beta teen HCL and pepsin. Um, I definitely think there's a time and a place for it for those situations. You know, if people lost their gallbladders, you know, like 20 years ago and they're digesting things just fine, you know, I don't think there's a need to go out and add in a bunch of stuff. But if you're struggling or it's a more present or recent health issue, sometimes I do find that they give people um, benefits.
0: Me too. Yeah, me too. Okay, a couple more here because I know Megan's got to go soon. Michelle Stone, I can easily accomplish 12 to 14 hours of fasting overnight, etc. Shall I increase that gradually or just jump up to a 24-hour fast as a starting point?
1: Yeah, so when you have GERD or reflux, it's good to take a slow and gradual approach with fasting. But uh, most People, you know, can sort of jump into those therapeutic fasting protocols just fine. When you're new to fasting and you've got a lot of insulin resistance, you're gonna see that insulin fall really dramatically at the start. And you're gonna be at risk for more water loss. So just be diligent about the electrolytes. I know a lot of people wanna do water fasting in the world and take water and salt, but if the you know, if you're at that sort of you know, intense insulin resistance phase of your healing and you're gonna jump into into doing some of the longer therapeutic fasts, you are gonna be losing electrolytes. It's gonna be hard to sort of supplement with salty water. There's so much, so much you can take. So it might be worthwhile. Showing yourself some grace for a couple of weeks and leaning into things like broth and sugar-free pickle juice. People seem to really not want to use fasting aims, but there's a time and a place Mm -hmm. for them. And I think that's one of the times and the place. So usually with people I work with, if that's their goal is to jump into something very therapeutic off the bat. Then I'll, you know, really encourage them for two weeks. Meet me halfway here. Have, you know, at least one cup of broth or something a day, so we're able to maintain this. I don't want you to, like, quote unquote, strain your fasting muscle.
0: Great. And Michelle, you're in the academy, so we could coach you on that. Uh, Jay says, does Megan believe in black coffee, tea, or plain carbonated water like San Pellegrino during uh, will it elevate insulin? What does Dr. Fung tell his patients about consuming this during their fasting window? Yeah,
1: so Dr. Fung is a huge fan of tea. Right? Years ago, he wanted us to make tea. You know, I think when it comes to tea and coffee, you have to sort of be mindful about your body's own sort of cortisol response to that caffeine. You know, sometimes people drink coffee, feel great, suppresses their appetite for other hours. Caffeine doesn't always serve everybody in that fashion. I am definitely one of those people. So I have had a a more difficult divorce from caffeine than I did from my first husband. Uh, So... It, it's, it's intense, but it's just not, you know, not good for me or, or my system. So I think you know it's about 50-50 in my clinical observations. Sometimes people find it to be a great fasting aid. Sometimes they don't. We are more fans of herbal teas, but not mm-hmm. doing anything to excess. Mint tea is a phenomenal appetite suppressant, peppermint, spearmint, whatever mint you want to have. Ginger tea can really help settle this tummy too. Dandelion tea yeah. is great support for the liver, Nettle leaf tea for glucose so you know, i have a whole cupboard of herbal teas that i now lean into rather than the caffeinated ones so much and then yeah but I, I, I try to use the rule of three you keep it to three a day don't you know guzzle 900 cups of dandelion root tea a day they do have therapeutic properties yeah. so be mindful of them and carbonated water jason loves as a appetite yep. suppressant i think it's a Good. phenomenal one too especially if you got those tummy gurgles it can really shut the tummy up
0: yeah wonderful last question and then i know you got to go jay says hi megan can you share with us both yours and dr Funk's eating protocols are you both carnivore If not, I can ask the amount of carbs. What type do you consume and how often do you and Dr. Fung fast and for how long? I know it's a lot there.
1: Yeah, so Jason and I do totally different things when it comes to nutrition. So Jason fasts once a year for about five to seven days, the sort of maintenance um, season. Clinging, just, yeah, just water in his tea. Um, (laughs) And then his days vary, two meals or one meal, just depending on how hectic he is at the hospital and if he has time to eat. On the weekends, he does typically eat breakfast. uh, And he's only got one kid at home now. But he says he likes to mix it up, but he typically only eats two meals still on the weekend. He just likes to mix up the meal timing a bit. Jason eats kind of, uh, he's a diet that's geared towards more real whole foods, but he's definitely not one to shy away from ice cream if he wants it so yeah yeah I struggled a little bit more with my health uh, and I'm going through all of this baby stuff so I've been a little bit more uh, intense I did 242s in a 24 to reverse my disease since then I follow more of a protocol like Jason's where I do either two meal or one meal I've let the my work life kind of dictate how that happens. If I, yeah, my wedding was kind of disastrous. I got married earlier on in my journey and I got married at Disney. So um, at, at one of the resorts at Disney. So it was super stressful and I ended up caving into all those Disney things. So even though I had done a lot of great help for a month, I did some therapeutic fasting afterwards. Um, so anyways, two meals, one meal is sort of the standard four times a year, though I do an extended fast. I travel a lot more than sure. Jason, and I tend to eat out a lot more than Jason. Right now, I've been in like this baby-making thing for a while, so I've been doing 14, uh, 14 to 16 hours of fasting a day, depending on where I am in the hormonal universe. So it's been very different. I tend to, you know, be a little bit more um, particular with my, with my diet, although I do have a weakness for really good Napolitano pizza. And so I'll probably have two or three pizzas a year. Um, I tend to carb cycle more with root vegetables or when Mm. I have starches on a regular basis, um, like right now, Trying to get my progesterone to be super peppy, I'm having more root vegetables in my in my diet and my routine. But I'm more, I guess, paleo. Yeah, minded.
0: Peppy, uh, peppy progesterone. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you have time for one more cancer question? Do you have? Yeah. To go? Okay. no, I got time. Okay. Um, Debbie says, "Can someone be in stage four cancer and they have months to live and have success using fasting? Is there a point where it's too late?"
1: It's a really, really sort of tough question to answer. Um, We have worked with a lot of cancer patients, Jason wrote the cancer code. It is never the sole tool or sole mechanism for helping someone overcome cancer, but it is a tool that is intended to be used with other tools. We've had people that have had pretty grim prognosis and are doing really well. I had a, wow. this young guy I work with was given six months right after his wedding. He's now been cancer free for five years. His wife's oh. actually pregnant and they Gross. didn't have to use the sperm that he banked before chemo and radiation because this oh, testosterone is good. So, so there are these miracle ish kind of stories um that do happen but i'll tell you it, with that gentleman um fasting was just one of the many tools that he was using for that time so i generally don't think being mindful about me- meal timing and food quality um is harmful for anybody so that's just uh something i would you know keep in mind and you know, make sure you're you know working with your healthcare team to see if it's yeah. a good fit for you
0: yeah, that's amazing. Megan, where's the best place for everybody to go check you out?
1: Yeah, so you can head over to thefastingmethod.com or I'm for the first time in my entire life going to do my own social media. So I'm going to start doing that in February and you can find me at um, Megan at J Ramos, M E G A N J Ramos. So I've just uh, been infinitely frustrated and want to get my own voice out there a little less manipulated. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, I love that you're doing that. You also have your podcast, fasting. Oh yeah, we've
1: got a fasting method podcast, which is cool. We've got there's three of us that host it, and we really try to keep it on fasting and, and behavior strategies as well.
0: Yeah, we'll drop links for all of Megan's work. We'll send you an email with that, but we'll also put it in the live stream chat. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for coming on here on a Saturday. I'm so grateful for you. You're just incredible. I can't wait to finally give you a big hug (laughs) in Denver next month. And uh, just thank you so much for today.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Happy fasting. And Ben, I look forward to seeing you soon.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Megan. She is incredible. As we mentioned, she has a brand new book coming out with Dr. Fung. On intermittent fasting for women. We're going to drop a link for that down below so you could pre-order that right now. Go follow her on social media, go listen to her podcast, go check out the fasting method. We'll drop all of those resources down below. If you want to join Dr. Fung, myself, Dr. Ken Berry, Dr. Boz, and other special guests for our seven-day free keto challenge, head over to ketocampchallenge.com. Please consider leaving the show a rating and review. Share this episode with somebody you know who has insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. If you wanna watch the video format of today's interview and all interviews that could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Thanks Keto Camper for spending part of your day with Megan and myself. I'll see you on the next episode.